Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, please visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Condello. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good to see you. Welcome for those watching online or in house church. Welcome. So glad that you could join us in this way. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, I oversee uh, birth through uh, some age in the 20s, um, somewhere along those lines, and uh, it's my pleasure to be with you here this morning. My oldest brother lives in Northern California. He lives in this beautiful place of the country on this beautiful piece of property in the middle of the redwoods, and redwoods are very impressive trees. They grow several hundred feet high. Their trunks can be 20 to 30 feet in diameter. And when you stand next to a redwood tree, you definitely feel small. They're impressive. Now, several years ago, on a particularly rainy and windy morning, my oldest brother's at the kitchen window, and he's making his coffee. And he looks out, and he hears this cracking sound. And three of the redwood trees in his yard are falling over thankfully, away from the house. Here's a picture of them just laying on the ground there. They did a little bit of damage. That's about 30 tons of wood there. Um, And yeah, it it was kind of a crazy story. Now, like I said, redwoods are amazing trees, but they do have a tendency to fall over. And the reason that they have a tendency to fall is because they have a very shallow root system. And when it rains hard, it erodes the soil. Or when the wind blows, it can topple them over. They grow hundreds of feet high. And their roots go down 6 to 12 feet. That's it. You can see here in this next picture, that's the root ball from one of the trees that fell. And there's hardly anything there. There's nothing really below the surface. And I think we can make a pretty obvious correlation between them and us. We can be big and strong and impressive. But if we don't have deep roots, if we don't have depth, then our foundation can get eroded. Or when a storm comes, we can fall over and cause some serious damage. And we're going to start a new series the month of June. We're going to call it Deep. And we usually use the word deep in things related to church and faith. And we say things like, I just want to go deep. Or that person's just not very deep. Or that place isn't deep enough for me. And what we mean when we say deep is knowledge. We're talking about knowledge. We want someone to tell us something we don't know. Explain some concept that I've never heard before. Wow me with the Hebrew or Greek. Give me a new angle. Give me a new wrinkle, something I haven't thought of before. Because that's our understanding of deep. Now, here's the thing. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is great. We should be learners. We should be growing in our understanding of Scripture. But have we substituted knowledge for depth? Because spiritual maturity is not just measured by scriptural knowledge. It's measured by scriptural practice. It's internally and externally living these things out. If depth were measured by knowledge, who would have been the deepest people in the New Testament? Probably the Pharisees. And it doesn't take too long to read the New Testament before you figure out how much they missed the mark. 
It always seems like we want a deeper understanding of the difficult truths of Scripture, but in reality, what we really need is a deeper understanding of the simple truths of Scripture that we can put into practice. Depth is not the addition of facts or ideas. It's the addition of a genuine response to the truth of Scripture. James chapter 1 says, don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says. And so in this series, we want to gain some knowledge. We want to learn. We want to grow that way. But we also want to understand that these things need to be lived out, that we want to put them into practice. And so this morning, we're going to talk about deep humility. And I'm so proud that I was chosen (laughs) to preach this message. Of all of the preaching team, only one could have really given this message well. Just kidding. Kind of. No, really, I'm kidding. Here's our big idea for today. Deep people live in and live out humility. Deep people live in, which is this sense of identity. They know who they are. And they live out this sense of practice humility. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And humility in Scripture is this idea of lowliness of mind, but it's a sense of smallness that comes when we compare ourselves to God and not just the people around us. It's an understanding of identity in the light of God and not just the people around us. And when we have this proper perspective, when we view things in this light, then it allows us to understand our place and to defer to others. And I think we understand the need for humility. We all would love to see more humility lived out, especially in other people. But I think humility is an idea that has the cultural wind in its face. It sure did in the New Testament times, in Greek literature from the New Testament era. Any usage of the word humility was derogatory because it was the attitude of a slave and they valued strength. So if you read Plato or Aristotle, they never used humility in a positive light. And I think it still has the wind in its face a little bit today in culture because we're taught to be who we are supposed to be. We're to be who we are and we're not to defer to other people. But Scripture uses humility quite a bit, as a matter of fact, 250 plus times, and it's overwhelmingly positive. So let's read Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Deep people live in humility. 
It's this internal understanding of our identity. Let's look at verse 3 here again. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. The NIV might be a terminology that you're more familiar with. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition, I think we understand. It means I'm going to get mine regardless of the strife that it causes. It's a spirit of divisiveness and rivalry. It means mercenary. But vain conceit is maybe a phrase that we don't use too often. As a matter of fact, it's used only one time in Scripture. And it's a state of pride without basis or justification. It means being empty. And literally, it means being glory empty. Don't do anything because you're glory empty. It stems from an intense insecurity, a, a deep sense of inadequacy, which implies this intense hunger for glory and honor and prestige and position. Because we're born into a broken world, because of our sin nature, we are born glory empty. And so we wrestle with insecurity. We wrestle with inadequacy. And what that causes us to do is it causes us to abandon humility so that we can do things that will prop up our value and our identity. And we know how this plays out. We've done these things before. We become driven to attain possessions because we believe that the more possessions we have, the more valuable we'll be. And so we try and get more and more expensive stuff. And what really matters to us is that we have more and more expensive stuff than our neighbors have. We want to have that comparison. We spend all of our energy achieving position and promotion, and we become obsessed with our image and our reputation, and we have great tools of social media so that we can manage those things. We put others down so that we can be above them. If I make you look bad, then I can look good. I can remember a time in middle school. We were in gym class one day, and we were running sprints. They were going to see who the fastest kid in class was. And so I ran my sprint. And when I was done, I noticed that some of the slower kids began running their sprints. So I lined up with them. But as they were running forwards, I lined up backwards. I'm not proud of it, by the way. And as they were running forwards, I was running backwards, trying to keep up and trying to have everybody look at me and, oh, isn't he fast? And, and it was coming from a place of being glory empty. And in one of the times as I was running backwards, my feet got tripped up and I fell over backwards and my head just ratcheted off and all the kids that I'd been racing against applauded. <laughs> and honestly, that's kind of indicative of how I feel every time I try and act out that way. And I'm embarrassed that I have so many personal examples of that type of behavior. We love playing the comparison game, especially with people who are failing at our strength. We always want to compare ourselves to them. Maybe if I can hold it all together, have enough, achieve enough, have others think well of me, then, then I won't be so glory empty. How's that working out for us? Not great. And we know that these strivings do nothing to fill the emptiness inside of us. Now, we can also take a different posture, one that seems more spiritual, but it's equally as dangerous. We can try and self-deprecate our way into humility. It's this idea that we'll talk bad about ourselves, we'll beat ourselves up, we'll believe the worst of ourselves, we'll never receive any compliments, we'll apologize all of the time for our behavior. But this is a dangerous posture as well because it can be just as self-absorbed as trying to make a name for yourself. 
You can still have your brain spinning endlessly around yourself trying to achieve the impossible. You're never going to reach humility through that self-deprecating posture. C.S. Lewis says it this way, true humility is more like self-forgetfulness than false modesty. He's saying it's not, false modesty doesn't get you anywhere. It's really about just kind of forgetting yourself. And what he means by that is not forgetting your identity in Christ, but not trying to always have to prove to yourself and to other people of your value, not always trying to speak to that and behave in such a manner that people think well of you. Here's the thing, as God's children, that value has already been spoken over us. You see, the beauty of faith is that Jesus fills us with his glory. We don't have to be glory empty. John 17, 22. Jesus is praying this prayer to the Father on our behalf. And so he says, I have given them, them, us, the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. Jesus has given us the glory that was given to him. It's this honor, renown, splendor. It's this idea of the opinion of God that determines value. And so Jesus is saying the same opinion God has of me, he has of all of you. You see, you have infinite, inherent, intrinsic value, and it's forever and permanent and unshakable. The glory has already been spoken over you. My wife and I have spent the past couple weeks looking through about a million pictures of my daughters because my youngest daughter is graduating high school this coming Wednesday. And we're putting together the obligatory slideshow that you show. And because she grew up in the age of digital cameras, we have a picture of every second of her life. <laughs> we have whole computers devoted to different school years of her life because that's how it is. And so we're looking through pictures like this one. Uh, and as you can see, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And there's tears, and there's some laughter. And you know what? Not once have we been looking at these pictures and have we said, you know why I love these girls? It's because they have such great stuff. That's why I love them. I mean, stuffed animals and an iPad. Or you know why I love these girls? Because in elementary school, they were a class officer. And in high school, they got their name on a plaque. It's none of those things. You know why I love those girls? You know why my heart bursts forth with love for my children? is because of who they are, not what they do. It's because they're my children. The value is settled. They don't have to earn it. And it's the same with us. When we try and fill ourselves with glory, we end up empty. But Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself so that we could be filled. Jesus looks at us and says, to me and in, in me, you're more valuable than anything in the universe. Jesus doesn't pity us. He loves us. He's delighted by us. Deep people live into this. Deep people live in humility, knowing that they do not need to spend themselves propping up their value and their identity. It's been settled, and so they can spend themselves for other people. And only when we understand how to live in humility can we truly live out humility. Only when we understand this identity piece 
this living in humility, can we truly live out humility? Because deep people live out humility as well. They put it into practice. Verses 3 to 5 says, be humble. Think of others as better than ourselves. Take an interest in others. We should be like Jesus who gave up his privilege, literally who emptied himself and became a servant, became a slave. Jesus did not take advantage of his position, the highest of all positions. Instead, he chose to unselfishly give himself away. We see this in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't cling to his rights. He gave them up. He put aside his rights so that we could have access to them. But too often, we want to fight for our rights. We want to fight for our rights, sometimes at the expense of other people, sometimes at the expense of the gospel. We become more concerned with winning than loving. We've elevated our rights over what is righteous. And at the root of this fight is fear. We're fearful that these rights might be taken away from us. We're fearful that if we lose this thing, then we won't be able to go on. And even though it seems like a small thing, we know that that can snowball into a bigger and bigger thing. And so we have to be very careful. And we assume this, this posture, this fighting posture. And we assume that people are out to take away our rights. Culture is out to take away our rights. And so then we approach every situation with our guard up. We approach every situation ready for battle. Our tech director here, Greg Gallagher, he has a phrase for this. He calls it being pre-offended. We approach every situation just pre-offended. We're just waiting for that one thing that's going to set us off. Let me give you just a small example of what this could look like. Is this taken? Is this taken? Can I? Oh, no. Yeah. Come on in. Have a seat. Name's Sean. Oh, uh, mm, yeah. Here. Is that okay? Yeah, right. I'm Brian. Welcome to Stay On Lines. First time here? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, yeah. Great, great, excited. That service will be starting in just a minute. Okay. Yeah. Is this okay? That's. I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. A no, further. We're, we're good. I okay. We're good. You right. did this. So yeah. I just, sorry. I didn't sorry. know. I think sorry. we're good. Okay. Yeah. Hey, uh, uh, Brian. Yeah. Uh, what what Bible translation do you use here? We use the New Living Translation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. I yeah. like that Very one. readable. I like that one. Good, good. Good, I'm glad. Do you do hymns or do you do like choruses? We actually do a little bit of both. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah, cool. For baptisms, is it sprinkle or the full dunk? For communion, does everybody drink out of the cup? Like the same cup or, or do they pass? Do you have women preach from the platform? We do, we do. Yeah, it's part of the DNA of this place. Awesome. You got a younger lead pastor, or I just don't know. Uh, n no, he, I mean he's getting up there. Oh. He still does a good job. He's hanging in there. Okay, okay. Crunchy or creamy? Peanut uh, butter. Hands raised during worship or pistols? Honestly, you, you see this sometimes. Cool. You see this sometimes, cool. but never pistols. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. I tell you what, the last church I was at, nothing but pistols. Oh. I mean everyone. Yeah. Pistols all over. I don't. Democrat or Republican? Oh. Great question. I, I usually don't say anything, but here's the thing. Um, <coughs> Sorry. Yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. Calvinism or Arminianism? Heidelberg or Westminster Shorter Catechism? Pre-trib or 
Post-trib. Pre-mill or post-mill. Amel or amel. Augustine or the works of Cyril of Jerusalem. Ducks or beavers. Easter or Orthodox Easter. Oh, that's a great question. You see, traditionally in the U.S., you celebrate Easter on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. In Orthodox Easter, you celebrate on the first Sunday after the first full moon after Passover. And so traditionally, we do after the spring equinox of traditionally U.S. Easter. What? Are you serious? Sorry. There you have it. Pre-offended. That's what it looks like. And this behavior leads to isolation. It's this idea of my way, my ideas, my rights. I'm not going to bend. I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to forgive. And so let me ask you this question. What are our rights as Christians? What are our rights as imitators of Christ? Because I believe that they're far more eternal than they are earthly. See, because of the sacrifice of Jesus and what we read in Philippians chapter 2, we have the right to a relationship with the King of Kings. We have the right to boldly enter the throne room. We have the right to forgiveness and restoration. We have the right to live forever in communion with God and with our family of faith. And we have the right to lay down ourselves for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. We have the right to be inconvenienced. We have the right to give our possessions and our money away. We have the right to defer to others. We have the right to put their needs above our own, to swallow our pride, to love our enemies. We have the right to love people, not run over people, not blow people up. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples, they're headed to Jerusalem. And along the way, they're going through these towns. And so Jesus sends some disciples to this Samaritan village to prepare the way for them. And the disciples come back and say, hey, they don't want us there. And when James and John hear this, I just love this. They say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Wouldn't that be great? That's their response. And maybe sometimes that's our response. Jesus, why don't you just fire from heaven and burn these people up? And Jesus rebukes them. That's not the way. That's not humility. Instead of asking Jesus, can you deal with these people? We should be asking Jesus, how can I love these people? How can I bless these people? How can I serve these people? How can I give up my rights so that they can have access to your rights, Jesus? One pastor puts it this way, the church always looks more like Jesus when we are defending others' rights rather than our own. The church always looks more like Jesus when we are giving away rather than demanding our way. Jesus humbled himself in obedience. He gave his life so that we could live. He lost so that we could win. And he calls us to live this out to have the same attitude that he had. And I get it. I get that it's been a tough season. I get that all of us are just a little bit thin in this season and stuff rises to the surface maybe faster than it used to. A pastor that I worked with when I first started ministry, he said, to succeed in ministry and to love people well, you need to have the heart of a lion and the hide of a rhinoceros. And I think the hide's wearing a little bit thin. I think our guard's up, and I think we're ready to fight. We're just mad at people, but we get so me-focused that we forget to be we-focused. 
Church, our family, we will see our family of faith 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 500 years from now. Do we have that mindset of eternity? C.S. Lewis, in his great essay, Weight of Glory, says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these things are mortal. These things are going to pass away, but people won't. People are forever, and so we treat them with no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. We treat them humbly. We serve them in humility. That's our trajectory. The way up is down. To be rich, we give. To rule, we serve. To become happy, we seek the happiness of others. We choose humility because Jesus did this for us. Deep people live out humility. So in closing, I just want to give us a few handles, a few things that we can work on. The first is this. Be more humble. Yep. Be more humble. All right. In all honesty, this is a terrible handle because we don't work on humility directly. Humility is a byproduct of something else. We can't get it by thinking about it. And the second that we start to talk about it and name it, we lose it. You can't go up to somebody that is very humble and say, hey, what's the secret to your humility? Because the second they speak to it, we've ruined them. Humility is a byproduct of something else. It's wanting something more than humility. So that's why that's a terrible handle. It's wanting to be like Jesus. It's wanting to love other people like Jesus did. So there are some things that we can practically do. And since it's a byproduct of other things, there's a whole host of things that we could do. And I want to give us just a few of them. And I hope as we hear this that we want to personalize. There's an invitation in this for all of us. This isn't those things that you go, Oh, man, I wish so-and-so were here. They need to hear this message about humility. They need to give up their rights. It's, it's for us. And so what's the personal invitation? Let me just give you a bunch of things, and maybe you grab one or two of these in the coming week. Uh, own our mistakes. A very simple one. We will make them. And so don't rationalize the things that should be repented of. We just have to own our mistakes. Increase our awareness of who we are in Christ. This is that identity work. Maybe this week you'll find some passages that speak value over you, and you can just write them out and continue to pray those back to God. Thank you for these things so that you can live in humility, and it will allow you to live it out. Be willing to be obscure. We live in a culture that longs for instant celebrity. We want people to notice us, and so we go to great lengths to make that happen. But maybe we can live differently. Maybe we can just live knowing that people might not notice. I might be obscure in these things, but I'm going to do them anyway. How about talk less, post less? Proverbs 10, 19 says, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That's what it says. And this is one of those verses that you could use to quote for other people. We need to own these things personally. Learn from other faith traditions who love Jesus. Rob talked about this last week and did a great job talking about how we can humbly just learn from people and learn other languages and listen to different worship music and fellowship together that way. There's a great humility that says, I don't have this figured out. Recognize when we are pre-offended. And that's maybe just the first step is you're like, yeah, I come into situations. I'm pre-offended. As a matter of fact, I'm probably mid-offended and post-offended. And that can happen. 
But humility is just a trust that God is going to work all of these things out. We want to see other people suffer. Oftentimes, we're very punitive in how we treat other people. We're like the disciples in Luke 9. We're like, God, get them. And we need to just recognize that and humbly trust God to handle that. We want to serve in ways that stretch us. This is one of those counterintuitive truths. When we empty ourselves in serving, we get filled up. And it should be something that stretches us. We have a staff culture document here at Salem Alliance. It's a bunch of statements that we just agreed to kind of live by as a staff. And one of them is, no job is beneath me. And I love that. I love working at a place where everyone would say, no, no job's beneath me. We can all do these things. And lastly, I would say, rejoice with those who rejoice. Even when you didn't get what they got, we rejoice. Deep people live in and live out humility. We don't want to be a church of redwoods. We don't want to be big and strong and impressive on the surface, but have no depth and no roots. We want God to call us deeper. And as we go deeper into humility, it impacts our families and our neighborhoods and our workplace. And Salem becomes more of a city at peace with God. And so may God call us deeper into this humility. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for this passage in Philippians. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the sacrifice that you made. I thank you that of all people who could have held on to their rights, of all people who should have held that position, you gave it up. You set the example. You showed us the way. I thank you for the example of your humility, and I pray that you would continue to teach us to live in it, to understand we have the glory of you, and to live it out with others. Jesus, as we enter this time of communion, May we remember your sacrifice and your humility on our behalf. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit at SalemAlliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.